Matthew 5:43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated. And as, you're being seated as you're being seated, let's just pray together, prepare our hearts. Jesus, we, we are so thankful uh, that you, by your Spirit, are present with us this morning. And we choose, Lord, to believe that. And not in just a pithy, um, yeah, yeah, Jesus is here with us, but you promise us in your word. It's a promise you give us that you will be present with us when we gather. So we choose to believe that this morning. That you in love are present with us and that you have a purpose, you've sovereignly ordained a purpose for what you want to in love accomplish among us and through us. So we ask that you to have your way with us. The things in our hearts and in my heart that is resisting you right now, Lord, would you silence those voices? Would you remove those barriers? Jesus, would you speak to us? Would we have ears to hear and eyes to see? Amen. Good morning. Oh, everybody's so somber. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name's Jake. I'm part of the team. I want to add my welcome to Heath's welcome. Uh, really glad you're here. Really glad to be able to sit with you and open up God's Word together. Uh, we're continuing in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And today, um, today, we have to get right into it. No fancy introduction. Because if you read our text, uh, you might have noticed, maybe you didn't, but you might have noticed, I think there's actually two sermons in our text today. It's sort of like showing up at the hospital and getting like an ultrasound. And like you're expecting one baby, and you came to church this morning expecting one sermon, but there's two. Surprise, it's twins. Amen? Thank you. Thank you. Some of you are like, I'm leaving. Don't worry, I won't preach twice as long, but I think our, our text has two distinct things uh, that we need to hear this morning. Uh, the first, we've been going through the past five weeks, and it's the same formula, right? You've heard it said, Jesus is saying, but I say to you, You've heard it said, but I say to you. Five times he said that so far. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus is reminding us time and time again that he is the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. That the law is perfectly understood in Jesus alone. And he's interpreting it perfectly for us, for us to live into today. And the story he's telling is not a new story. Jesus needs, if we can say it like that, the Old Testament. He's not looking to cut it off. He's continuing the story of Israel, and he's showing us how we live into that story, indeed are grafted into that story. So we have that sermon. Uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And, and it's not anger this morning that he looks at. It's not lust. It's not lying. It's not oaths. This morning he's looking at love. At love. And we're going to see there's a reason Jesus concludes this section of the sermon with love, because love is the highest kingdom virtue that we can uh, strive for or obtain in our lives. This is this virtue of love. That's the first sermon, okay? Sorry, that wasn't it, but that's what it will be about. It's longer than that. 
The second one, uh, we'll, we'll look at verse 48. And verse 48 will be on the screen behind me. And in case you missed it, uh, it said this. You therefore, Jesus says, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. At the end of our time together this morning, we're going to step back. And we're going to see the city that Jesus has been building over these past five weeks. The, the kingdom that he's been painting for us. And we're going to see what does this mean for us to live into this. Uh, we're going to revisit a, a Greek word, which I know you're excited about and just jazzed on this morning. And then we're going to ask the question, uh, Father, what do you want to do uh, in us? F- Father, what do you want to take from us? What do you want to fill us with? So, so we'll, we'll do that work. Sound good? Yes? If the whole two-sermon thing is like very confusing and anxiety-inducing to you right now, let me give you three points because you like three points. Here are three points. Ready? First, love and hatred. Point number two, the family resemblance. Point number three, the command to be whole. So love and hatred, the family uh, resemblance, and the command to be whole. Have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible at all, feel free to grab one at the back, pull it up on your phone, whatever you want to do. Let's read verse 43 and 44 again together. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we live in a world, I don't have to belabor this, we live in a world where love means a lot of things. I love uh, pizza, and I love my son. And somehow that's the same word, right? Where love is an emotion, a a feeling. Uh, I'm not saying anything new when I'm telling you. We need to redefine, according to the scriptures, uh, what love is. What love is. And to do that, we have to begin uh, with God himself. And just like we've seen so far that God is just, and God is merciful, uh, so too do we also this morning need to see that God is love. And if that sounds familiar, maybe you heard what the Apostle John wrote. He said this, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is, is love. Again, if you were with us the very first week in January, we spent some time talking about how I cannot say Jake is love. I can love other people, but I am not in myself love. Why? Because I'm one person. But Father, Son, and Spirit, our triune God from, from before the foundation of the world, always existed in a community of love. And therefore, we can say that God is love. In fact, all of God's acts towards us, from creation to, to sustaining to redemption, to the eventual day of Jesus' return, all of these uh, acts are God moving towards us in his eternal, always existing love. There, with God, love exists perfectly. And it wasn't as if God wanted to keep this to himself. From the beginning, though, we read in Genesis that we were created to be uh, these little royal ambassadors of God's kingly love, showing people what the king's love was like and is like. And and if you don't know the story of the Bible and the story of God's love, here's like a quick 20-second flyover. We read in the story that his love is steadfast. There's this fancy Bible word called covenant, which basically just means really big promise. And God makes these covenants with his people as a sign of his steadfast love. Upon himself, he makes these covenants. 
It's a steadfast, trustworthy love. On his name, he makes these promises. We also learn and discover that his love is for our good. It's for our good. That like we prayed uh, this morning or, or heard this morning, we are being grafted into a story which will eventually end with us standing before the Father, uh, being the people he has always created us to be. It's for our good. But, but where the love of God uh, diverges from our worldly love and, and, and sort of sounds different is that this love always doesn't feel good. If we read this story, we learn that the love of the Father uh, looks at times like discipline. The author of Hebrews tells us this, that what father who loves his child, loves his son, loves his daughter, doesn't discipline them? And discipline doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel nice. And we see that this love means that we endure hardship and struggle and trial. In all this, he's forming his son in us. So this is love, just really quickly, at a vertical level between God and us. Between God and us. But we are called, as I said, to live this love on a horizontal level between us and one another and and the church and beyond the walls of the church. When we seek to apply that love on a horizontal level, we could define biblical love like this. And, And let's leave this slide up there for a bit because I want you to write it down. It's important. Biblical love is a rugged commitment to be, notice this word, with someone, with someone, as someone who is for, notice that word, that person's good, and to love them onto God's formative purposes. I'll read it again. It's a bit wordy, but that's fine. Biblical love is a rugged commitment to be with someone, as someone who is for that person's good, and to love them unto God's formative purposes. I want to highlight two things about this love. This love involves both presence and purpose. Both presence and and purpose. And so if we were to sketch uh, the history of, of, of the scriptures, we would see that God was present with Israel, right? You're tracking with me? For, for the purpose of them being not only a blessing internally, but a blessing externally to the nations. He's present for a loving purpose. So would we say, as I prayed, that Jesus is present with us this morning for a loving purpose of having Jesus himself formed in us. So too now, so from Israel to the church now to us, so too are we to be a loving presence to other people for a specific purpose. A specific purpose. That's love. God is this love. He has moved towards us with this love, and Israel with this love, and the church with this love, and we are to move towards others with this love. Now what I want to do for a moment, if we can put that just on the shelf for a second, we'll take it off and come back to it later. I want us to notice something a little bit strange in our text. And maybe you picked up on it right away. Verse 43 said this. Did you catch it? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor, and then, and then what does Jesus say? And hate your enemy. Now, throughout this section, Jesus has been quoting laws sort of devised or summarized by the Pharisees themselves. And they have rightly understood that in Leviticus 19.18, it says, Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. But what these Pharisees have done is they have added an addition to this law, which is found nowhere in Scripture, which says, And hate your enemy. Which is interesting. 
And I think where I go, maybe you go here too, maybe you don't, maybe you're a better person than I am. Probably are. But where I immediately go is I think, oh, stupid Pharisees. Like you just missed it. And hate your enemy? Guys, come on, it's about love. You just missed it. Let's just step back for a moment and, and just reframe sort of the context here. The Pharisees, unlike many of us, at this point in history, have many legitimate enemies. We can think most obviously of the Roman oppressors who are keeping them in physical bondage, who are enslaving them, uh, who uh, have uh, the Jews, Israel, under their thumb. Right? We can think of their, their obvious enemies that way. More broadly, we can think just of Gentiles or non-Jews in general. Unclean people who in some way, shape, or form could, could prevent or disrupt their worship of the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. So the, the, there's the Roman oppressors, Gentiles, non-Jews in general. But even within the Jews, again, there are all these rival sects, right? There, there are some who, who have joined the Roman forces and are working with them and they're sellouts. Still others have picked up the sword, and they're going to fight them. See, instead of writing off the Pharisees, we could recast them, and I invite you to do this with me. We could recast the Pharisees uh, according to our modern sensibilities a bit like this. The Pharisees are a biblically conservative, socially conscious, materialistically simple, Jewish reform movement trying to do their best to observe the law in an age where it's very complicated, where, where there's much to be angry about. I, I heard someone say this this week, and I think it's true. If you and I were living in that day and age of Jesus, many of us would be Pharisees. Many of us. Where, where the temple has been co-opted, how, how do we reform that? Where there's all these people doing these things. And so how do we resist the violence but still say, but we got to hate our enemy because our enemy is very real right now. It's a very real felt presence. My, my, my point is this. I don't want us to see in our text this morning the pharisaical edition of and hate your enemy and just write them off as first century religious extremists. Because here's the deal. The Pharisees just had the guts to codify what's going on in, in our hearts. They just had the strength to codify and put down on paper what is going on in my heart and, and likely yours this morning. I, one cheeky commentator, one very cheeky commentator, he said this, and I love what he said. The command to love one's neighbor comes from Leviticus 19.18. The addition and hate your enemy comes from, let me see, Nowhere in the Bible. But then he writes this. And he writes this. But it does come quite naturally from the human heart. Let me take this even deeper. If we do not love people, and again, Jesus has expanded the category of people to include here our enemies. If we do not love people, we are guilty of hating them. See, there is a big honking lie that exists in the middle of our interpersonal relationships, our, our relationship to other people that goes something like this. We don't have to live in the extremes of love or hate. That we can avoid altogether the extremes of love or hate. 
that it is okay and acceptable, but not ideal, to be in a place of indifference, to be in a place of apathy, to simply put up with that annoying person at work and secretly wish they moved desks, like to across the office. That's okay. It's not love, but it's also not hatred. And that's fine to exist in this middle ground. The binary world that Jesus and his contemporaries inhabited reminds us that there is only love and hatred. That ultimately there are only two postures we can take to people. Either we love them or we hate them. And I can feel that some of you don't believe me. So let me make this even more specific. Have you been given a sphere of influence? No one here has. Have you been given a sphere of influence? Yes. Yes. In some way, shape, or form, you have been given a sphere of influence. At school, uh, at work, at your kid's school, at the local soccer team, right? You get the point. We've all been given different spheres in which we interact and, and can influence other people. In those spheres, do we not have all sorts of victories? Yes. Right? Great joys, great triumphs, great successes, we could say. But have we also experienced in those spheres, and think about one sphere in particular, whatever that is for you, have we not also very much experienced great pains, great hurt, great rejection, great sorrow? So what do we do? And maybe you're not ready to admit this. What do I do? I withdraw. I never wanted to be with those people. I hate them. They're stupid. Here are three or four reasons why they're stupid. Right? We withdraw. Right? We, we throw up the walls and, and, and we withdraw. Now, how did we define love? Can you put it back on the screen, Neil? How did we define love? Love is a rugged commitment to be with someone. Present. Physically there. Emotionally there. No walls. And if you're not faithfully, lovingly present with other people, how can you do that second part of how we've defined love? Love is this rugged commitment to be with someone that's present as someone who is for that person's good and loving them unto God's formative purposes. It's worth stepping back and asking ourselves now, Have we been hating or loving in the spheres of influence we find ourselves in? Has our posture been one of presence and purpose or of indifference, apathy, or annoyance, which is really just fancy words for hatred? How have we been living there? I'll I'll, I'll leave that. Here's where the rubber meets the road, I think, for us as, as 21st century people living in Vancouver all those, all those things. Instead of calling people enemies, because that's like archaic, like two kingdoms, enemies kind of language. You don't use enemies language, right? Unless you're really, really mad at someone. But instead of calling people enemies, uh, we've just quietly decided in our hearts, in our hearts, uh, who we will create distance from. Who we will choose to not care about. Who we will choose to ignore and, and just write out of our lives. But that's not hatred, right? It's just apathy. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just. And then we do this. We say compared, right? Compared to how the world loves, it's not that bad. 
Like, I'm not slandering somebody on Twitter. I'm not actively opposing that person. You know, compared to how the world acts in hatred, really, truly, that, that can't be hatred in me, right? Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. Jesus asks us in our text this morning not to measure ourselves against the love of this world, but again, he's calling us to something greater. Did did you catch it in the text, verse 45, the second half to verse 47? He, he, He compares the love that we are to show to the love of who? The Father. That eternal triune love. He says this about the Father's love. For he, that's the Father, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Then listen to this. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. These are traitors. And if you greet only your brothers, those who look like you, those who think like you, those who immediately agree with you, there's an ease in this relationship. If you greet only brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the unclean, pagan worshiping, that's, that's my you know, addition to the scriptures, do not even the Gentiles do the same. Don't even people who don't even know Yahweh, who don't even know the love of God, don't they do the same? That's not love. That's self-perseverance uh, or, or, or self-preserving. That's natural tribal affinity groups. See, has the Father loved his church in a special elected way? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. John Piper says this. The root origin of loving enemies is to experience being loved as an enemy of God. This is for Christians, followers of Jesus, to live out. But Jesus is saying that in an even more general sense, has not the Father loved all people when he sends rain on the crops of good people and bad people, of liars and people who tell the truth, when he gives life and health and wealth to people who hate him? Has he not loved all people? Theologians call this common grace. He's shown common grace to to all of us here this morning. We're all recipients of this common grace. See, worldly love, I'm just going to make this explicit, says we can be present up until a point, only to our comfort, to our limits. But when we consider God's love shown in Jesus taking on flesh and going to the cross on our behalf, we see that that is turned upside down. Worldly love is quickly seen to be me-centric, me-focused. And worldly love says love to whatever you decide the purpose of love is. You define love. You define how you want to be formed and shaped by love. Just do that however you'd like. But the love of God is holy. It's holy. We as people are ruggedly committed to being with people and loving you unto God's formative purposes. Meaning, let me spell this out. He loves us, and we are to show one another this love so that our home life is conformed to God's purposes. He loves us so that our sex life is conformed to God's purposes. He loves us so that our work life and, and, and our, our community life and our, you know, our desiring life, everything is conformed unto God's purposes. It's a holy love. 
It looks and smells a particular way. It's not just anything goes. Now, two more things on love and hatred before we move to our second point. And the first is this. And this has been said over and over again in the series. And if you're new to the series, uh, welcome here this morning. But Jesus is presuming throughout this entire sermon that we will, be face, uh, we will face opposition. He is assuming that if we live out this greater righteousness into this kingdom ethic, that there will be people who oppose us, who hate us. And so some of you are listening this morning and thinking, I really can't think of any enemies. Like, like no one. And I think, and, and just sit with this for a bit, and we can talk about this after, I think part of the reason, not always, but part of the reason that happens is because no greater righteousness is showing. Like there's nothing to oppose in your life. You've privatized your faith, and there is no public living this out. So just sit with that for a bit. I'll sit with that afterwards too. The second thing is this. The parallel expression to love in our text this morning. Did you see it? The parallel expression to love in our text this morning is to pray. It's to pray. Now we think about that in only like a psychological sense. Okay, if I pray for the person, I'll get over any resentment I have towards them, and it's for my own good, and you know, it's just this kind of this, this hurdle that I'll get over in my brain. I, I love what one commentator says. He says this, The command here to pray is not a cute formula designed to get us over the hump of bad feelings or resentment but is a tangible outworking on, on, of being with people and seeking God on their behalf for his purposes in their life. I want you to do something weird right now. I want you to look to your right. I promise you we're not this church usually. And, and, and look to your left. And look at the head in front of you. And don't, don't turn around, but, but imagine someone's looking at your head behind you. When is the last time you prayed for that person? And some of you are sitting beside your spouse, and you're like, I did it this morning. But like two rows down, you don't even know that person's name. We love each other when we pray for each other. When we seek God's formative purposes for each other in prayer. Prayer is not this superfluous, extra bonus Christian thing. It is a tangible outworking of love of love. And I wonder if many of our prayers are not just kind of me-centric, like, Lord, what's going on in me? Or if many of our prayers are not like, Lord, rain down fire and, and brimstone on that person. That's love and hatred. Point number two, the family resemblance. This will be by far the quickest point, and so just strap in, here we go. Verse 44 says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then look at verse 45. Do you see that? So that, it's reward language. And we're uncomfortable with rewards because we're Protestants and we don't believe in works righteousness. Amen. But it's reward language. And Jesus uses it throughout the sermon. So that, I'll leave that there, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's skip down to verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we come to the end of this section of the sermon, Jesus is looking back. I said that. And as we look back, we see that he's been sketching a picture of the person of greater righteousness. 
the person who can enter and flourish in the kingdom of heaven. This person, as we'll see next week and for the next three or four weeks, who is not a hypocrite, who is doing outwardly what is true of them inwardly. You know when kids are like, I'm smiling on the outside, but inside I'm really, really mad at you? Jesus is looking for these whole person disciples. He's been painting a picture of these whole person disciples, people who do not begrudgingly obey God. He says, at bottom, these people could be defined as a son of our Father who is in heaven. Now remember here, the the language of sonship is not like dudes only. Like you become a Christian and you become like a dude uh, in in Christ. That's not what's happening here. It's It's inheritance language, right? It's the son who in the ancient world got everything. The daughter got nothing. And Jesus is saying, just like a son gets everything, so too will all of you, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, all of you get everything in me. It's adoption language. At base, at foundation, Jesus is saying, when it comes down to it, these people are children. They're my brothers, and they're children of the Father. So, so, so here's what's going on. The amazing thing about belonging to the Father is that despite your earthly family of origin, and despite this morning the failings of your earthly parents, and despite what you yourself have done, you are adopted into a new family. You, you have a new identity. And some of you need to hear this proclaimed over you this morning, that in Jesus, in Jesus, you are no longer owned, owned by the domain of darkness, but are now owned, enslaved, in service to our loving Heavenly Father. See, we've all got to serve someone. It's just a matter of who our master is. And what Jesus is saying today is that as we show, as we show this family resemblance, when we live out this greater righteousness, we see it reaches its highest expression. God's children are never more like God's children than when they love. Than when they love. What's more, when we act like children of our Father, in little ways and in big ways, and I heard this this week, and it was such good news to me, so I want to bring this to you. When we act like children of the Father in little and and, and big ways, we are bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear wherever we are. So, So listen. Mom or dad sitting here in this room, when you act in mercy towards your child who refuses to listen, when you do not lash out in anger, instead act in grace, you are bringing the kingdom of heaven into your home. Accountants. Any accountants in the room? They're the hands, right? This is busy season for you. You need to hear this. Accountants, when you refuse to to play with the numbers to make the company look better to its stakeholders, you are bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear in your work. Husband, when you sell your laptop, buy a crappy flip phone, and begin meeting regularly with people you don't even like so they can keep you accountable, and you're putting lust to death in this life, husband, hear this. Boyfriend, hear this. You are bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear in this life, in this world. Which leads us to point three, or if you can handle it, sermon number two. The command to be whole. 
Verse 48 in our text is a summarizing verse. And it's not just summarizing our section today. It's summarizing the past six weeks. It's a summarizing verse for us. We're going to do three things here in closing. Three things. We're going to ensure that we understand. Sorry, we're going to read it first. That's number one. We're going to read the text. Then we're going to ensure that we understand it. And then from there, we're going to ask our Father to search us. To search us. As a church, as individuals, to search us. So the Bible's open. Matthew 5, 48. Read with me. Jesus says, and he concludes, think about all that we've read in the past five weeks. You, therefore, in light of all of this, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. For for some, Matthew 5, 48 has been the go-to verse to prove that the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, is all about an impossible ideal. That you and I are meant to see this impossible picture of what a Christian is and then say, oh, I can't do it, and then run to Jesus. And that's really just the point of the sermon, to make us feel bad about ourselves so that we run to Jesus. Let me say a few things really quickly. One, should we run to Jesus? Yes. Two, do we need Jesus? Yes. But the whole point of the sermon is that by the Spirit, we can live out this righteousness. Like, Jesus would have not have said this many words just to prove to us that we can't do this. He wants us to live into this, be changed by this, be this new community, these kingdom people. So it's not an impossible ideal going on here. Will we do these things perfectly, fully, this side of heaven? No. No, no, no. But heaven, like I said is already at work in us because Jesus is living and moving and changing us by his Spirit. And maybe for some of you, even over the the course of this past six weeks, he's been changing you. So Matthew 5, 48 is not a roll over and give up verse. Rather, the meaning of Matthew 5, 48 becomes clear to us when it is rightly translated. Let me explain. The word for perfect, you see that word? The word for perfect we find in our text this morning is this word uh, teleos, or teleos, and I'm sure Heath will correct me later. It's it's a Greek word, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. There you go. Teleos, teleos, unlike what our word perfect makes us think, refers not to moral perfection. Let me say that again. This word refers not to moral perfection, but to wholeness of being. Wholeness of being. The problem is, you and I, as 21st century Western thinkers, we read perfect and immediately think what? Checklist, own moral effort, get my crap together, right? In that order or some version thereof. So we immediately either give up or feel defeated or shame or guilt or whatever the case may be. But what Jesus says in Matthew 5.48 is nothing different than what he's been saying all along with each of these examples. He's saying, like he said, don't just be someone who doesn't cheat on his wife. You must not even be a person of lust. And don't even just be someone who administers justice, but administer justice with the same mercy that you've been shown. In other words, as we said, Jesus doesn't want people who begrudgingly obey him. He wants our hearts and our hands to act as one. He wants wholeness. All these examples have driven to the conclusion, you therefore must be whole as your heavenly Father is Whole. Do you see that? You therefore must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. We'll see this next week. But this is why Jesus will turn next in the sermon 
to attack specific hypocrisy or, or unwholeness that is being modeled by the religious leaders of the day in their religious practices. See, in this tragic irony, the very disciplines that God gives us to worship, enjoy, experience Him, feel whole and experience His wholeness, like giving and prayer and fasting, these disciplines have been turned and corrupted and co-opted for unwhole purposes, for fracturing purposes. One scholar noted this really simply, in every aspect of our lives, the disciple is he whose dedication to God is total, single. That's what Jesus is driving at. That's what Jesus has spent six weeks telling us. The disciple is he or she whose dedication to God is total and single. And if what Jesus is talking about is not moral perfection, but wholehearted orientation toward God, now, now we have something to examine our lives by. Now we have a question that we can sit in. Again, for six weeks we've been driving to this one point, this one question. I want you to hear it. What is preventing you from wholeheartedly orientating your life towards God? What is stopping you, preventing you from wholeheartedly orientating your life towards God, Father, Son, and Spirit? And here's what we'll do. I do this all the time. I ask a question. I say, well, maybe it's this. And maybe it's this. Or maybe it's this or this or this. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm not going to ruin that for us. We're going to wait. We're going to spend some time uh, in silence asking the Father to, to show us. But before we do that, I want to do one thing very quickly. I want us to make sure that we're, we're oriented biblically. As Christians, we believe that we fight a battle on three fronts. That the battle for your wholeness happens in three arenas, if you can say it like that. The first arena is the world. The world. And by this we mean really simply general cultural forces at work that are actively opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. When we think of the world, we can think of uh, materialism, uh, Western naturalism, right? Uh, an overly sexed culture. The world preventing us from experiencing wholeness in Christ. That's our first arena. Second is this. Second is the flesh. The flesh. And by the flesh we mean the ongoing battle that happens in Christians to put to death the old self by the new self. That in Jesus now we have the power to say no to sin and to overcome the flesh. Right before we are helpless to the flesh, captive to the flesh, couldn't say no to the flesh. Now in Jesus we can say no to the flesh. But that battle keeps going. You know this, Christian, don't you? The battle wages on. So we have the world as an arena, we have the flesh as an arena. And the third arena of our warfare, which is one that we don't like to talk about as progressive, uh, materialistic, Westerners, is the demonic. The world, the flesh, and the devil. In these three places, we fight the war. Our battle, we're told this so clearly in Scripture, so clearly, so that we don't miss it, is not against other people, but against evil spiritual forces that blind our eyes pre-Jesus and continue to oppose us and harass us and vex us and condemn us post-Jesus, post-coming to Christ. We fight this battle according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
So I want you, if you can, if you want to close your eyes, you can do that, to hold these three categories, these three arenas in your mind, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as I ask this question. In which arena, in which arena is your battle for wholeness taking place? Now you might say, Jake, it's in all three. Could very well be in all three. Or maybe it's in two, or maybe it's specifically in one. What I'm going to do now is pray. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask our Father. I'm going to ask our Father that he would reveal to us, because he loves us, the things that are preventing and blocking, perverting, twisting, complete and total Godward orientation in your life. Can I do that? I want you in this time to take whatever posture you want. Maybe you want to hold your hands open like this. Maybe you want to kneel. However the Lord is leading you, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, who has always loved us before the foundation of the world. Father, who sent his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to rescue us from the domain of darkness. We invite you now to, by your spirit, as we wait in silence, to search our hearts. To bring to mind, in this moment, in this place, the points of battle. whether they be worldly ideas and concepts and philosophies that we've bought into that oppose you and your kingdom, bring those to mind now, Jesus. Lord, if they are fleshly desires that we have been uh, overcome by, held captive to, even though we know we have the power to say no to them, would you bring those to mind now, Lord Jesus? Lord, if there is something demonic, unclean happening In the hearts of those gathered here, would you also bring that to mind? Make that clear? We wait on you. We pray now against unbelief in Jesus' name. Father, we are so thankful that we can come to you and not only cognitively know that you love us, but in confessing these things to another person and giving these over to you, it is a tangible outworking of the question, do you trust me? Lord, I pray that we would be a people this morning who answer yes to the question that Jesus asks, do you trust me? Lord, I pray that that yes would look like a time of confession with another person, 
of response in worship, a conversation that needs to happen when we get home. Lord, for those of us who need to answer yes now, give us the strength by your Spirit. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.